0: Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And today we have a special for you. It is another mailbag. Uh, Didn't expect to be doing another one so soon. But, you know, last episode of the episode before, whichever order this is released in, I don't remember off the top of my head. We asked you for your recommendations for how to cope after finishing this series because one thing that us series veterans know is that this show doesn't leave you if you make it to the end of this series you are cursed with the brain rot which is utana um it will infect you and it will forever dominate um your sense of taste <laughs> 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 like you can't properly compare other anime to Utena because this series was catching lightning in a bottle. I've said that before. Um, all of the people involved in its creation were at like exactly the right time in their career to be both brilliant and messy in exactly the way that you need to be in order to channel true genius. Um, like, yeah, there's always stuff in the show that we can criticize. There, There's continuity errors that we as fans just like integrate into it as like some big brain 3D chess kind of thing <laughs> that was actually just like them not paying attention to their own uh, storytelling t- because like the crunch of their production schedule. Um, <laughs> like we, we, there's other stuff that we think is like this deep message that is actually just a random thought thrown in there. <laughs> yeah, but nevertheless, it all comes together in a way that I would say even a lot of Ikuhara's other works don't. Um, Ikuhara gets a lot of the um, a lot of the credit <laughs> for this. Hasagawa and Akito, they also are like cornerstones of this. Um, Chiho Saito, this wouldn't have come together the way it did without all of them. Like, we always look for ways that the, um, that the music in the, the duels correlates to the duelist, But <laughs> a lot of this was like J.A. Caesar's other stuff that he pulled in for this show. Um, wasn't necessarily composed for these characters in any meaningful sense. Uh, but it, they were kind of curated for them. Um, You can also find like Caesars other unreleased uh, so-called dual songs out there as well. But series veterans know that you need some way of coping with coming down from the series after you finish it. So we got a letter asking for ways to cope with this. And so we gave our recommendations and then we asked you and you all, (laughs) uh, poured out a ton of recommendations for us too much to go through in a typical episode Um, if we tried to do all of these letters that you sent in in a normal episode we'd be recording for four or five hours Um, our episodes normally take at least a couple hours to record Um, but yeah because you all were so prolific here we go with another mailbag episode (laughs) already (laughs) it's only been like six episodes since our last one (laughs) um okay so our first one comes from paranoia android and paranoia writes hello i just had a few observations relating to your most recent two episodes so i think most recent two i think this is going to be referring to episodes 33 and 34 firstly regarding the speculation in episode about if Otori Academy looks like an eye from above. Otori is specifically meant to be shaped uh, like a kofun, a type of uh, Japanese tomb. Oh. First off, Paranoia puts in a link here, and I will add this link to a a tweet once we publish the episode. The kofun linked here looks exactly like Otori Academy. So yes, I... (laughs) You are definitely right. Um, but also, like, the front of it with the road and the zigzag, like, I'm wondering if um, Dyson Kofun in Osaka is actually what Otori is supposed to be. Like, we've all been talking about this as if it's in Tokyo. I'm wondering if Otori Academy is actually this place in Osaka.
1: <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that picture is wow
0: <laughs> did you did you google it uh-huh yeah yeah no it is bang on it is exactly like the overhead shot of uh otori academy i can't believe i didn't know this thank you for sending that in um secondly uh so back to the letter uh secondly with regard to the point of view what if nanami episodes are from anthe's point of view This would make sense, as Anthe is, in a sense, manipulating Nanami throughout the series as much as Akio manipulates Utna, although with different intentions. I'm not sure, though, that I'd say the entire series is from Akio's point of view. I still need to figure out all the implications of that. I really do like the idea, though, that episode 33 is meant to make us question the neutrality of the rest of the series, as I think that's a large part of Ikuhara's aim with the show to set up something weird and arbitrary, normalize it, then show that it actually serves those in power. He does the same with the shadow girls who start out in a, as a weird intrusion, become accepted as a quote neutral Greek chorus, and then are revealed to be complicit in Akio's propaganda in episode 34, when they perform his version of the tale of the Rose. Yep. Um, I would argue that like that also comes into play in episode Uh, This is me again, not paranoia. Um, I would argue that it also comes into play in episode 33 with their radio show uh, and the way that they they set him up um, to basically just say whatever he wants for that. Uh, Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. So thirdly, a note on Edison and his inventions as, quote, miracles. Many of the inventions attributed to him were not, in fact, invented by him. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) He either improved on pre-existing ideas or patented devices developed by his employees. Not unlike a certain Silicon Valley billionaire right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think this relates to the idea of a chosen, uh, of chosen and unchosen people, which is so prominent in Utna and Ikuhara's other works. Edison as owner of the company was individually credited with things that were created collectively and was thus sort of a chosen one, an individualist, uh, in parentheses capitalist, mm-hmm. uh, hero of the kind that Ikuhara is attempting to critique through Utana. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Edison's playbook is the playbook that Elon Musk is using now. Like, he didn't invent any of those things, he bought those companies. And in the purchase agreements for those companies, they sold him a, quote, founder title. <laughs> <laughs> like, the right to call himself a founder of these companies, Um, even though he had nothing to do with the initial setup, not even, like, the initial financing on these things. Um, You can also see, like, strategically, Elon Musk is um, buying companies that are required for... Setting up his like I don't know Martian kingdom, like however he wants to like he has this like clearly hyper capitalist hyper feudalist vision for escaping Earth and going to Mars, and like dude, no one is gonna actually want to put up with the the level of control that he's gonna exercise if he actually pulls this shit off. <laughs> with you no one's gonna want to put up with you is what autumn wanted to say (laughs) yeah uh the fact is i don't think elon musk is going to survive to see his vision completed yeah no um he's actually one of the few uh tech billionaires who isn't heavily invested in longevity technology which is weird i I would almost anticipate him being like super invested in it i write yeah (laughs) Um, God, I don't want to talk about Elon Musk on this show. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, finally, uh, so this is back to the email. Finally, regarding the question of whether other anime are comparable to Utana, um, my biggest recommendation would have to be Paranoia Agent. First off, I fucking love Paranoia Agent. I am with you. Um, it's the only series directed by Satoshi Kon, who made Perfect Blue. Millennium Actress, Paprika, and Tokyo Godfathers, and it's really spectacular. Um, I'm just gonna jump in here again and say, yes, I love Paranoia Agent. Perfect Blue is fantastic. Uh Paprika is amazing. I think I think Perfect Blue and Paprika have been done better in recent years because like the topics they dealt with are now current. And so more art gets made about that, about those ideas now, but Satoshi Kone was on the cutting edge of talking about that kind of shit. Like perfect blue is all about the parasocial relationship. Mm. Before we had a word for that. (laughs) Gotcha. That's cool. Um, Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, anyway, back to the email. Uh, If I were describing it briefly and flippantly, I would say that it sums up the nature of living in the 21st century in 13 episodes. Um, Yeah, actually, that's what I kind of (laughs) just said. Uh, If I had to go a little more in depth, though, I guess it's about how the increasing pressure people are under drives them to create their own escapist realities, which, if believed by enough people, can essentially become the, quote, real reality and how this pervades society. It applies these ideas in fascinating ways, bringing up urban legends, fandom, the atomic bomb, cute mascot characters, crime, late capitalism, and much, much more. And balances huge social ideas with great individual stories in a really effective way. Uh, It expresses this with an almost anthology-like detective story about a series of random violent attacks in which each episode tells the story about a different victim, often in a different genre. Ranging from police procedural to dark comedy to puzzle box psychological thriller to kaiju battle to <laughs> making of mockumentary, all with Satoshi Kon's inimitable control over his medium. I love that description <laughs> uh, Chesney. Have you seen Paranoia Agent? I have not. Okay, this description dead fucking accurate. Nice. <laughs> um. You had me at kaiju battles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm gonna after this. I'm gonna send you the intro to this show, and it is delightfully unhinged. Okay. Um, other recommendations: uh, Lupin the Third. A woman called Fujiko Mine is also really interesting. It even references Utana a bit, if I recall correctly. Um, I haven't seen that one, so I. <sighs> I want to say I saw some Lupin, like, back when it was on, God, it was either Toonami or Adult Swim, like, 20-some years ago. Um, anyway, I think a lot of Ikuhara's most interesting influences are actually from outside anime, though. So, in a sense, that's where you might have to go to find stuff that's really comparable to Utana. Mm-hmm. Um, as Empty Movement has mentioned on Twitter, Lost Highway, the David Lynch film, is a huge influence on Utana. Uh, and it's pretty clear that Ikuhara's entire approach is heavily influenced by Lynch. I think that Twin Peaks, especially Fire Walk With Me, is very reminiscent of Utena. The way Lynch uses words and images as motifs reminds me very much of Ikuhara. Um, I agree. I've also mentioned uh, Lost Highway on here before. Um, I've also discussed the, um, the, the Twin Peaks parallels, especially with the way that utina starts out as a character and like you mentioned this earlier in the email um utina starts out as a character who is very grounded in reality where the magical aspects of the show shock and surprise her in a way that they would an ordinary person witnessing this stuff Mm -hmm. the same way that at the beginning of twin peaks the murder of laura palmer shocks and surprises the town the way it would a small town. And then like over the course of Twin Peaks, they go through all of the soap opera bullshit with the plot twists and the melodrama. But unlike a soap opera where these all lead up to the next big twist and it's always over the top, the characters in the show are allowed to react to soap opera melodrama the way a real person should react. (laughs) Um, And you get this like seesaw back and forth between characters that are way out on a limb psychologically and ones that are completely grounded. And the ones who are in those positions switch over the course of the show. But it becomes a show about TV by the way that it does this and gives people the opportunity to react realistically to the over the top nature of TV plots. Huh. Uh, Twin Peaks is brilliant. Uh, yet
1: another show I have not seen. Uh, dear listener, you will soon learn. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't already, you will soon learn that uh, there's a lot out there that I have not seen. Twin Peaks is one of them. Uh, the animes that you mentioned as well. I haven't seen those. Uh, but I've always wanted to watch
0: Twin Peaks. Just haven't gotten around to it yet. I highly recommend doing so. Um, <laughs> but like this parallels with Utena. In that over the course of the show, the temperature keeps getting slowly dialed up with Utana. where by the by this point in the show where we're reaching the climax, the overtly magical stuff doesn't phase her anymore. And that itself is going to come back around in a really big way, in a way that Chesney is not prepared for. (laughs) oh good (laughs) um like the the proper analysis of this and like the true parallels between twin peaks and utana can't fully be explored until you see the climax of the final episode Uh, (laughs) but um lost highway i think lost high the fact that akio's introduction on the road with like the camera running down the center line of the the highway. That is a direct shot for shot reference to Lost Highway. Damn. That is not an accident of just being influenced by it, right right? Like the main character in or one of the main characters in Lost Highway um, is a character who, I, I kind of want to say struggles with masculinity. The same way that Akio does. Mm. Um, Because like with Akio, we see these two sides. We see both the prince and Akio. And it is a narrow vision of masculinity. But over the course of the show, we see all the ways that that narrow vision of masculinity hurts people and that pain radiates out from him. That is the same thing that happens in Lost Highway. I'm going to say if you don't already like Lynch, Lost Highway is very hard to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a film nerd. <laughs> it is it is a movie that is opaque to an almost punishing level about like what it's about. Mm. And if you're not prepared to like really dig into it, it's fine skipping it <laughs> <laughs> like um it's either the one of the movies where like you think oh my god lynch is a genius or what the fuck is this <laughs> <laughs> and as a fan of lynch i can't say that the latter group is entirely wrong i think there's a a more accessible way to like make this movie <laughs> yeah yeah Anyway, there is still more to this email. (laughs) Uh, Somewhat off the beaten path, though, I think that the 1997 cult horror film House has a lot of striking similarities. It is, in my opinion, about the cycles of repetition that occur as each generation forces the next into strict gender roles and represents the timelessness these cycles require as an inescapable location. The the so-called house of the title. It's also very weird and inventive in a way that seems at least somewhat adjacent to Ikuhara's work. I would also argue that it's use of, I would also argue that it's use of very pointedly artificial and TV commercial like aesthetics to represent the teenage worldview is kind of analogous to Ikuhara's use of like the stage and anime aesthetics to represent the artificiality of Otori and by implication, the social hierarchies and gender roles as a whole. I've never heard of House. I will put that on the list. <laughs> yeah, me either. Um, the wonderful Tilda Swinton starring film Orlando has an incredible parallel with Utena as well. Uh, it seems strikingly similar in its use of wealth and a location, in this case, an English manor rather than a school, to represent stasis in time, and is similarly interested in critiquing gender roles through a naive central character. It's also just a really good film. I suspect some of the parallels are the result of the film source material. Perhaps being an influence on Rosa Versailles. Mm. Interesting. Um, uh, Rosa Versailles is another anime that's fantastic. And you should check it out. Um, the Jacques Demi musical Donkey Skin. is uh, similarly struck me as having some interesting parallels. Never heard of that one. Nope. Um, and that's all the description we have for this. <laughs> uh, and of course, there's also Shuji Terayama, the Japanese avant-garde film and theater director and frequent J.A. Caesar collaborator, who was also a huge influence on Ikuhara's visual style. Although from what I've seen, Terayama definitely gets into uh, some quite confronting stuff at times. Thank you for an insightful podcast. I can't wait to hear what you both think of the movie. Thanks for writing in.
1: Yeah. Yeah the movie will certainly be
0: interesting (laughs) (laughs) you are not prepared for the movie i surely am not (laughs) the movie's plot is almost like impenetrable if you have not seen the show oh okay (laughs) once you've seen the show it's kind of trivial to understand what's happening in the movie without having seen the show when we watch the movie, I definitely want to have Carly back on the show, because Carly's first experience with Usna was seeing the movie before seeing the show. Yes. So we need to get that perspective on here for her to talk about like what that was like. Um, my predictions for what she's going to say are, it was really good. I thought I got it. It was kind of confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the movie also like compresses some characters a little bit. Um, and like Nanami is in like a a single shot and she's only in like her cow form. Uh, Okay. Like if you (laughs) haven't seen the show, that shot is just like confusing and meaningless. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like okay, somebody just snuck a weird fetish in here or something. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: Toga's role in the movie is complete. Well, I won't say his role is completely different. His role in the narrative is actually fairly similar, but the character of Toga is itself completely different. Oh, okay. Um, I won't say how or or why, but like, it's interesting how they they do this with him. And like we see the the like the Black Rose elevator again, but its role in the story is completely different. Oh. Um uh, it's stuff like that where there's a lot of nods and references to the show. It's kind of more like the relationship between Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2 where it's like half sequel, half remake. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's like it's hard to really say it's one or the other. Okay. Um you mentioned uh paranoia you mentioned in your email the the theater stuff. One of the things that we have just been like criminally negligent in not talking about more and this is my fault because I'm not terribly familiar with it myself, but the um Takarazuka theater, the women's theater is a huge influence on this show. The hmm. aesthetics of it. If one of you listening knows more about um, Takarazuka, please write in and, and share. Um, because I know it's an important piece of all of this, and I just don't know enough.
1: So this next one comes to us from Optimistic Duelist, aka Taz, aka at Rose of Nobility on Twitter. Uh, And it's called On Royalty,
0: Divinity, Anthe, and Dios. So to provide a little context, um, this was a Twitter conversation that we were having. And I was like, I don't want to forget this conversation. Please write in and into the email and and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Gotcha.
1: So they wrote in, hey, Taz slash at Rose of Nobility on Twitter here about halfway through your episode on 34. I've been loving this podcast all the way through. You're doing amazing work. Thank you. Appreciate that. When I heard you two discussing how Dios is specifically marked as not being able to, quote, save Anthe or make her his princess, it prompted some connections that I wanted to mention. And then they linked the Twitter thread uh, and said, but here's a more collected version of my thoughts. It seems to me that a lot of the incestuous tension in Utana is tied to the confused blurring of the line between the Disney model of prince and princess as romantic fantasy, i.e. a prince is inherently aristocratic and special and can make any girl special by virtue of loving her and also solve all her problems by virtue of being perfect, which carries the implicit assumption that the girl always listens to him when he suggests what she slash they should do. Yeah, completely agree.
0: <laughs> yeah, Especially when you consider that the history of anime traces back to Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, The medium itself was inspired by Disney style animation from the 50s. And so uh, when you go all the way back to like Astro Boy.
1: Yeah. And that a prince is inherently aristocratic and special, can make any girl special by virtue of loving her. Yeah. 100%. That's what's going on in the show. Oh. Oh. They also put in parentheses, for Dios, saving girls from problems slash monsters and saving them from romantic solitude seem to be one and the same. The chew kiss sound the shadow play versions of Dios and the princess girls made when kissing each other reminds me of Choo Choo, as visually
0: identified with Akio, actually. Hmm, that's a good point. I really don't want that to be true. I think that's very interesting. I'm a little grossed out. I love it. Go on. (laughs) I want to be clear. Like I've been in this fandom for 20 years. At this point, I just really like theories and like fan theories that made me go, ew. Okay. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Because like, I've already seen all of like the garden variety, normal fan theories. (laughs) (laughs) Chucha's a
1: physical and maybe spiritual and emotional manifestation of the kiss that she'll never get from her uh, her love, which is her brother. Ew. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they then go on to say positioned versus the idea of a prince and a princess as, quote, special siblings, both positioned as potential heirs and scions of some political dynasty. This idea comes up in Utana. Nanami is at times referred to as a queen of the campus, ruling through soft power from the shadows, notably by Suwabuki in the secret Nanami diary, I believe. This is the model of aristocratic siblinghood Akio and Anthe represent. And then I'll add here to me, Chesney, I'm adding here that this is again how Toga and Nanami foil Akio and Anthe Yeah. because they are the more like seen monarchy of the school and Akio and Anthy really operate from the shadows.
0: Yeah, and in both cases, they represent a true aristocracy of people who are inaccessible except by the the bits of them they allow you to see.
1: Mhm. And by other people in power. Like other people that have things that they want. Like right. some some rando could not come up to akio although me saying this out loud i'm like maybe they could (laughs) because akio really doesn't seem picky and neither does
0: toga um (laughs) well it would be a purely transactional relationship in that case yeah that's where like yeah toga will give any girl his cell phone number Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that's only because he wants to use them for sex yeah and as soon as that interest in them goes away he stops taking their calls yep the accessibility is entirely one way yeah he has complete access to them and restricts access to himself and Akio's kind of the same way yeah in his case he can either ride up his elevator to (laughs) the planetarium or hop in his car and he's just gone from the life of whoever he doesn't want to be around
1: yeah so they then go on to say, now historically, traditions of monarchy were often, if not always, supported by notions of divine right to rule, especially during the European Christian monarchy era Utena seems to draw so much from. A prince and princess and a king and a queen are made special, not just by political power, but by the mythic notion that God himself has denoted them as such, and that's part of the allure of the prince fantasy as much as anything else in Utena. This is a set of beliefs that's, useful as a foundation for systemic control of people made to believe aristocracy, quote, deserves the benefits of power over them. We'll come back to this in a second. But it's also internally useful for aristocracy as a means of imposing control of younger boys and girls born into the monarchy who still need to be beaten or groomed into internalizing and maintaining that societal framework onto future generations.
0: Like what has happened with the British royal family that has been thrust back into the news by the Queen's death yep. like I know that there are laws in place to govern like who becomes king and in what order but like, You've got William, who is a staunch institutionalist, as is his father, Charles. Um, And then you have Harry, who is like, nah, fam, some of this isn't okay. Like, especially the racism part. Yeah. And like, he's the one where the conditioning worked to a point, but not completely.
1: Mm hmm. They say, that puts an interesting light onto why Dios can't save Anthe. Even a young and truly noble prince, historically, would probably be unable to save female siblings from any fate the political machinery at the time decided was most useful to impose on them. Back to the idea of royalty as divinity, though. To me, that weighs heavily on Akio and Anthe, with all their strange magic and power over the school and everyone in it. That which shines, the power of miracles, miracles in quotes here, eternity, the power to revolutionize the world. All of these ideas, all of these are ideas that can be associated pretty easily with godhood. And Dios is literally the
0: Spanish and French word for God. Yeah, I don't think I haven't thought about that a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) I would point out that like the power to revolutionize the world, that lies in the hands of the people. But. The illusion is that it lies in the hands of the aristocracy, and it is useful to them to maintain the idea that they are the ones who command that power.
1: Oh, yeah. 100%. So in essence, to me, the prince, as formulated by Utena, isn't just a romantic fantasy, but also a religious one. To me, it specifically evokes the conservative Christian fantasy of a patriarch living in the sky. I'm going to butcher this word axiomatically morally that, perfect. That is exactly how you say that word. A axiomatically morally perfect and omniscient who will take care of you and make your life perfect if only you sublimate your agency into his and let him tell you what to do. Fam, let me tell you, that has not worked out for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, ex-evangelicals, rise up. <laughs> hey, I'm an ex-Catholic over here too. Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh. As a side note, this is me, Chesney wondering um, how many um, ex-evangelicals and ex-Catholics and etc. Um, are drawn to this show to critique it. <laughs> I really do. Can't help but wonder. Anyway. The masses coming after Dios and Anthe then represent the frustration and hatred of a world that has been sold a fantasy where putting their faith and trust in singularly special, powerful people will create happiness for them, only to find that those higher beings were actually fallible people too. It's all very Nietzsche, I guess. God is literally dead. The masses literally killed him for failing to live up to their fantasy of him. And now all that's left is ghosts, and play acted versions of that fantasy playing out in the social slash political theater of Otori. Damn. Not wrong. Yeah. I'm, lo- I'm loving where this email is going. <laughs> yeah. God is literally dead. I love that we got that as an email. <laughs> <laughs> this relationship between Princehood and Faith colors a lot of my views of the duelists and their brides, too. For one example, it suggests that maybe Dios's power originated in Anthe's ability to look up to and believe in him, in the childlike way some siblings might look up to their older brothers, believing them able to do no wrong, and that Akio's fall is tied to the fact that Anthe having to step up and protect him also meant knocking him off that pillar inside her own mind. Maybe that's the root of his resentment for her. Yeah. I mean, if we're looking at this from like uh, analyzing everything that you've just talked about, masculinity and femininity too, the one thing uh, that masculine folk cannot have done is have their power usurped. Like once their masculinity is knocked down a peg or two, uh, it's the end of their world. So I do feel like your point about Anthy having to step up and protect him. Meant that he truly fell. Maybe he couldn't handle it either.
0: Yeah, like there is that sense of either he respects her as an equal, in which case her protecting him is as morally neutral as him protecting her, or this is a violation of the order of the world and he has been emasculated by this act. Yep. I think he feels the latter. I and agree. He, and he takes it out on the female students. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Because he still has to prove his manhood still. Yeah. I, and he, I think that's part of his dynamic with Anthe too, is proving his power. You know, proving his power in a world where at one time she had to defend him.
1: Yeah. In a weird, I'm still over you kind of way. Exactly. Yes. Very much about the power.
0: In their relationship now. I, I think that's also why like. In the play within a play. Even if Akio is the one who set up this play. Even if he's the one. Like let's assume he is. He's the one who set up the the shadow girls. To put this on. And tell the story exactly from his point of view. It reaches the end of the show. And the camera falls on him. And his face looks hollow. Like one. One. Part of him knows that this isn't the truth, and part of him also knows that, like, even though he set this up to to show his side of the story, he can't bear to see even his side of the story because the ending is him, in his view, being humiliated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he had the wool pulled over his eyes from his point of view.
0: I would venture to say that it doesn't actually matter which version of the story you're talking about, because in both cases it ends with Anthony getting one over on him in his view, according to the logic of how he operates in terms of like masculinity and his role and all of that in both versions of the story, you know, he loses in a way that, in his mind diminishes his masculinity. Yeah. And he can't bear to see it. He he needs to show Utena that he's a victim, right? Like he needs her to buy into the idea that he's a victim. So whatever he does is justified, but in playing this out, he's tipping his hand that at one time he lost even by his own rules.
1: Yeah. He's just that stupid meme. Where somebody's going, This is so humiliating. That's just him on the inside when he's sitting there watching the <laughs> Shadow Girls play.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think it cuts to the idea of like which one of them is like the actual abuser in this relationship. That like he is approaching the entire relationship from a victim mentality. And when a person operates from a state of like perpetual victimhood there's usually like a catastrophically fragile ego at play yeah. that leads to them abusing their partner because they believe whatever they're doing is justified because they're retaliating, you know? Right. Whatever they do isn't, um uh, isn't them, you know, doing a bad thing. It's them responding to the ways in which they're a victim in their view. Mm-hmm. Even when like, from outside anyone who looks at this goes yeah maybe a bad thing happened to you one time but you have done this whole list of other things since then <laughs> yeah <laughs> the the debt was repaid way back years ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> now this is just you being a trash person yeah acting this way because you want to So they
1: then go on, for an opposing example, I'll touch on something I've been holding off on emailing you all about for ages, and we will follow up on after you finish the movie. If we take for granted that a person's ability to draw out the power of another as a bride is tied to their faith in that person as the noble prince, then doesn't that suggest that however fucked up his relationship to her is, Toga on some level admires and believes in Nanami in a way that makes her his prince? Hmm.
0: Yes. <laughs> 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 I. I don't know if I agree, but I like it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see it, like the way that um, their arc ends when um, Akio and Anthy let Nanami see them. The way that that arc ends makes me say yes to this question of Does that make Nanami Toga's prince?
0: Yeah, I think it in this case, mirrors the way that Utena and Anthy have switched roles in the duels.
1: Because, mm-hmm.
0: like, originally, Utena was drawing the sword from Anthe, and now Anthy draws it from Utena.
1: Yeah. Oh, and Taz adds, maybe for her purity and resisting all the toxic, abusive sexuality and Otori in particular, her ability to reject Akio where he couldn't? Just a thought, and maybe spoiler-sensitive— But I've been thinking about it for ages, so I wanted to share. Thanks for sharing, friend. And then... (laughs) This is funny. Anyway, woof. Sorry for such a long message. Just goes to show how much fun I have thinking along and listening to you two. I hope you have just as much fun finishing the show up. And then there's two follow-ups to this. Yeah, there's two more (laughs) emails. (laughs) That's why I laugh. Uh, So... Follow-up. I found it extremely funny hearing you two speculate on all the reasons Anthony closed her eyes when Utuna invited them to the play. All valid interpretations that never occurred to me because my reading started and stopped on thinking she closed her eyes out of shock at Utana's specific suggestion that they, on going to the play, make it a threesome. <laughs> According to the subs, anyway. <laughs> oh. You know... That's also a completely valid interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the last one says, one last note now that I've finished. I wanted to throw in my recommendation for Review Starlight? Yes, Review Starlight. Okay. Since neither of you had watched it, it's directed by an Ikuhara protege who worked under him during Hwaro Penguin Drum and Yuri Kuma Arashi. And the show seems thematically linked to both shows, in my opinion. It's also very genre aware and feels very informed by Utena and Madoka Magica in particular to me, as well as just being kind of a massive love letter to both the Yuri genre overall and film and theater and literature. Structurally, its central gimmick is Utana duels, except the songs are in-character duets sung by the dueling girls in question, as opposed to J.A. Caesar's cryptic lyric work. So it's more approachable in that way? (laughs) (laughs) And tonally, my friend hit the nail on the head, I think, when she described it as Utana or Maruka on mood stabilizers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. A lot no. of the city. <laughs> Incredible. A lot of the same approach to character work and relationship building, but with the sheer brutal intensity of stakes blunted somewhat in favor of exploring the girls' relationships to
0: each other and to the stage and the idea of performing in general. Okay, so you said that my brain parsed that sentence as stakes, like what you would stake a vampire with, so like a blunted stake, yeah, yeah. making it like super brutal and painful, as opposed to like lowering the stakes on the the competition
1: <laughs> uh once again utana is uh secretly again I, uh, yes
0: exactly <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a vampire show fight me <laughs> uh, oh bite me lol
1: uh I'd categorize the original 2018 anime as pretty good slash okay, fun and memorable, but not exactly a challenger to Ikuhara's storytelling. The 2021 sequel movie punches up everything Starlight does so much so that it now stands fully on its own as one of my favorite shows to visit though. And in my opinion, turns it into a solid rival to anything like Utena or Madoka in terms of character and relationship writing, if not in terms of societal or cultural critique which is fine because the former is what it really seems to aim for anyway. It's a very fun watch that I wholeheartedly recommend, albeit with some photosensitivity warnings for the movie. Nothing worse than what you find in Utena or Everything Everywhere All at Once, though.
0: Thanks so much, Taz, for writing in. I gotta say, Everything Everywhere All at Once is another one that, it is completely different from Utena yeah. on every meaningful level. And also, it scratches the same itch, like... The level of creativity, the the queer, um, actually, in this case, it's not even subtext, the, the queer text of everything, everywhere, all at once. Everything, everywhere, all at once has overtaken everything else and become my, like, number one best movie of all time. Damn. Like, there's other ones in the, that remain in my top five, but everything everywhere all at once is now going to be my go-to movie when people ask me like, what's your favorite movie? Hmm. Just like the thematic perfection of it, the incredible creativity of it. um, The way in which it weaves together queerness and family and, uh, and choices and consequences and, the subtlety of the way in which like love or the lack of it is displayed within family relationships. Um, like the, it doesn't always come as like, uh, you know, full on disowning your queer kids. Sometimes it's just refusing to call your kids partner, their girlfriend, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh god, it's such a brilliant movie. I, I love everything about it. I need to um, rewatch it. I also really love Madoka. Um, it's a <sighs> Madoka is a show that it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that Madoka is a shojo anime. It is not. It was never marketed that way. It was never uh, produced that way, and you can tell even like from the character designs that it's not actually made by or for girls wasn't it marketed as a horror like Uh, in the horror genre i mean it it fits there but i don't think it was marketed (laughs) there (laughs) okay
1: maybe i'm just thinking of the wave of online feedback oh yeah if you were
0: if you were on tumblr yep in 2011 which i was yeah you would fully <laughs> understand the depth of horror that this show reaches mm-hmm. um, but it was not i don't think that was ever part of like the official marketing of it um but like i see a lot of people make the mistake of lumping it in with shoujo anime madoka isn't one um and i can't fully really explain to you like the subtleties of why it's not um but like if it's in conversation with say Sailor Moon like Madoka doesn't stand alone or Madoka doesn't stand on its own you have to have some understanding of both Sailor Moon specifically um five-man band Sentai shows in general, so like Super Sentai or the other one. <laughs> 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 like there there's two of them. There's Super Sentai and there is um Common Rider. That's it. <laughs> 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 um you know, you have to be familiar with like that genre. And this show definitely falls more in line with like Common Rider than it does with you know Utena or Sailor Moon it's more cut from that cloth even though it is about magical girls it's not a shojo anime that said still one of my favorites that's like shojo adjacent mm-hmm. <laughs> um it, it's not quite shonen but it uh, kind of is like <laughs> <laughs> it's its own genre Next, we have an email from Mako, uh, M-A-Q-O, or PCC underscore M-A-Q-O on uh, Twitter. Hey, y'all. Sorry for the length of this. Actually, you know what? Um, This is not longer than the two that we just read, so you have nothing to apologize for. (laughs) (laughs) None of you do. We're here for the fan mail. Yes. (laughs) Um, First, watch, uh, or in parentheses, read the manga uh, has a goofier tone that I think especially helps the earlier parts. Rosa Versailles. Uh, it shares the women with swords and gender ambiguity and French theming of Utana. It's a little old, yeah, but it's very much a story that holds up. Read the rest of Ryuko uh, Ikeda's manga too. The two that I've read, Onesamae and Claudine, were both great. Um, I have not read Onesamae. I have heard of it. It has been on my list for like. Ever, but I will say Rose of Versailles is brilliant. And yes, like there is a clear through line from Rose of Versailles to Utina in terms of gender and swords <laughs> and roses. <laughs> Second, if you watch Review Starlight, don't treat it as Utina 2. Okay. <laughs> uh, no spoilers, but while it shares a lot of the same setting, it's ultimately trying to tell a very different story from Utina with a very different structure. A structure that, while almost just as strange and probably off-putting as Utena's slow burn is to a lot of people, is also very different. Utena has a lot of side stories, but they're all connected thematically to the question of identity, uh, particularly what does it mean, if it means anything at all, uh, to be a prince or a princess, a prodigy, a child, an adult, my brother's sister, a girl boss lesbian, etc. <laughs> Starlight stories felt to me initially disconnected until I watched the sequel movie at, uh, which at least in my mind retroactively connected those stories with the main pair in a meaningful way. In short reading the premise may make it feel like a budget Utena but if you watch the whole thing you'll find an entirely different beast though personally I was captured from just the second scene I love that like this email comes right after the last one talking about yeah. a Review Starlight Thank you for that caveat. (laughs) A big note on that though. Try to find some fan subs, ripple or fly subs for the show, fly subs or veggie subs for the movie. The official subs and dub, at least uh, when the show was first airing, didn't have any subtitles for the songs, which is a huge, huge mistake. The official movie subs have the songs, but they're still pretty poor. I managed to see it twice in theaters, but boy, am I glad I already had the script memorized. (laughs) dedication yes i love that uh i have a version of the show subs i made with open dyslexic for a friend of a friend which as far as i know went over well so feel free to point listeners to me if anyone needs help finding subs especially applying them to the official releases or editing for dyslexia those two are my big recommendations they form a clear line of inspiration in my head Rose of Versailles is the one I would recommend most broadly, even though Utina is the one I would recommend most emphatically. And Starlight has been the biggest source of brain rot for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're great in different ways. Third, if you want a bit of a dumber and more lighthearted take on Utina, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Quote, what if we had sword fights in school and we were both girls? Uh, with like the... Um, shock emoji (laughs) sort of (laughs) setting. Hayate X Blade is fun enough. At least as far as I've read, the main pair don't have as explicit of a relationship as Utana and Anthe, but their dynamic is great. Uh, Big fan of short and dumb uh, slash tall and cool. (laughs) I would argue that in the show, their relationship isn't explicit. Like, they had to walk an incredibly fine line with they how far they needle. Yeah. They, <laughs> it was so hard for them to nail it the way they did because they couldn't make it more explicit.
1: Yeah. Otherwise they would be flagged as cousins.
0: <laughs> well, there's some interesting like behind the scenes stuff with, uh, Chiho Saito who was doing the manga mm-hmm. and, um, the rest of the folks who were doing the anime where they kind of wanted to push things further in the anime, as far as the two of them being explicitly a lesbian couple, the manga doesn't go there. The manga is a very different beast for Utena. Mm. Um, There's like this like steady, uh, it's not a progression. It's a spectrum. The most straight of everything Is the manga, then there's the show, then there's the movie, then there's the movie manga. I thought you were going to say the musicals after that. I mean, I haven't seen enough of the musicals to put them in anywhere. The musicals I have seen hew pretty closely to the show. Okay. And since it only covered the first two arcs of the show, it didn't get there. Okay. So yeah final part of the email here finally for non-fiction and further fiction recommendations check out the work of erica friedman she's on youtube has a bunch of essays and lectures uh posted on the YuriCon website and her blog okazu and she wrote a book called by your side uh, the first hundred years of yuri so embarrassingly i have an erica friedman story oh uh, which is that I was tapped to contribute to an anthology that she was putting together, mm-hmm. and I fucking blew it. Like I, oh, yeah, oh, no, like, no. <laughs> um, stuff was like kind of falling apart in my life because of the relationship I was in at the time, and so like I had to back out at the last minute and. God, I hated burning that bridge. That was like if I have like one professional epic fail, it was that. <laughs> like it, it was that. Like it, Erica, if you are listening to this by any weird coincidence, I am so sorry I did that to you. That was like 7 years ago at this point. Um <laughs> I regret that to this day. It was my most embarrassing professional fail, hands down. I was honored to have been invited to contribute to this anthology and the fact that I failed at it is one of the things I am most bitter about, about the costs of that relationship that I was in at the time.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope she does hear this. (laughs) (laughs) If only to close that, uh, not to be too on the nose, but to close that little chapter
0: (laughs) fucking rip, man. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it this is why you date healthy people. <laughs> uh-huh. And not, not physically. Like it's why you it's basically why you have healthy relationships. Let's put it that way. Yeah. This is why you have healthy relationships, because yeah. unhealthy ones can definitely cost you professionally. And That's, in other and, and in other ways. And in other ways, of course. Like yeah, I've yeah, talked yeah. about those other ways on the show before, but like that was the one time where the toxicity in that relationship truly cost me something professionally. I think I remember you talking about this before,
1: too. Just not in this detail. Damn. But thanks, Mako.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, uh, for anyone who wants to look this person up for fan subs of uh, Review Starlight, it's PCC underscore Mako, M-A-Q-O. All right, so our next one is We Don't Talk About Dio from
1: Brian. Hell yeah, I'm so ready. Hey, Autumn and Chesney. Dear, back in 2004 or 5, I joined the University Anime Club. They had an access to a lecture hall with a projector that they would use to show anime that they had in their collections. That's awesome. I got introduced to a lot of new anime that way, including Revolutionary Girl Utena. It was described as an anime that was,
0: quote, definitely not about lesbians. <laughs> because it's about vampires, I've been over this. i <laughs> oh, dead.
1: Over the course of several weeks, I think I saw most of the first season, two or three episodes at a time. I thought it was a weird show with a lot of emotional resonance. Since I liked Weird, I eventually tried to find more about it and managed to locate the rest of the first season and the movie in a boxed set, but that's as far as I got. Flash forward to earlier this year. I was looking for The Sunlit Garden on Spotify, and I found your podcast. Hey, Wild. (laughs) That's awesome. Not only did you point me in the right direction to see the rest of the anime, you also pointed out a lot of the subtext that went completely over my head. I wanted to write to you a couple of points about Akio. I missed it on my first watch through, but Utena never met him when he was Dios. Utena's prince has always been Akio. I see the prince as the embodiment of the traditional view of what the masculine role is supposed to be. Powerful, protective, and self-sacrificing. It's what Utuna aspires to be. He was literally killing himself to live up to it, and in an attempt to save him, Anthe locked away the self-sacrificing part of him. The problem with doing that is if you remove selflessness from the traditional masculine role, you end up with nothing but the abusive toxic mess that is Akio. Yup. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, because if you look at it from a metaphorical point of view, uh, like you just said, Brian, about Anthe just locking away the self-sacrificing part. Yeah, no wonder he's
0: like this right now. Yeah, because like if that's the part of him, going back to the other email... If that's the part of him that left him vulnerable to being emasculated by her, that is the part he has to cut out of his life. Yeah. And why he resents it so much. And, like, that's the commentary on masculinity, right? Like, the way that men and boys are taught that they can't have emotions because that opens them up to being weak in the presence of women.
1: Yeah. All they get is anger And that's it. No sadness, no grief, no fear. You can't be too happy or you're seen as gay.
0: Uh, Yeah. With the specific exception of joy at the suffering of others. Yes. Like the only joy that is allowed to be unequivocally loudly expressed is dominance over others.
1: So Brian goes on, my read is that it's anthe who both initiated the awfulness in their relationship and is the one most able to walk away. She violated her brother's free will and identity, turning him into a monster. For him to leave her would mean abandoning the part of himself she's locked away, since without it, he's incapable of understanding how to get it back. Damn. I know we want to root for Anthe and Utena's relationship at this point, and that makes us want to see her with as little culpability as possible but I honestly think reading one as the victim and the other as the villain is too reductive. They are both hurt and violated and destroying everything around them in different ways. Because of the magical realism, it's not something that maps well onto real life relationships. Women don't have the ability to magically change who the men in their lives are, though they may wish to. My last point is that there's more to this origin story than we've been told. Enough that Enough that they could do a whole other, less original perhaps, series about the noble teenager with the power to rescue people from the evils of the world, his devoted magical younger sister, and the cruel adults who seek to use them to their own ends. Maybe the author thought of that story first and then wrote this one instead as the logical result of the other.
0: Okay, so I love that you pointed out that because of the magical realism this doesn't map cleanly onto real life relationships or doesn't equate nicely to um, real life abuse. Because this is actually a conversation that I got into on Twitter at great length uh, just two days ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, In that, the idea that the show raises Anthe's culpability in this in such an explicit way isn't necessarily like a neutral thing to do. So, the, the idea that Anthy has the supernatural power to violate Akio's very identity shifts the dynamic in a way that simply isn't possible. I think this is a lot closer to like a David Mamet play, where it's supposed to be ambiguous in a way that both is intended to drive conversation about it and also exposes the unresolved feelings of the the creator like i feel like right now in especially these episodes we can see ikuhara working through some shit yeah just like in terms of his own view of masculinity femininity relationship dynamics i think if he was trying to show "quote unquote" an abusive relationship, the power dynamic would be a little bit clearer, because yeah, like the the magic piece really messes with that. And like to go back to the point I started trying to make, raising Anthe's culpability at all as an issue is not a neutral act. You know, like in an abuse situation. Asking the question, well, what did the victim do to bring this on? That is not a neutral act. Yeah. that That is the, well, what was she wearing? Right. <laughs> argument, you know? Um, I have more that I want to say on that point. Like, this isn't my complete thought on this topic, but we haven't gotten to the part uh Like we haven't gotten to like the final reveals in the show where I can go into greater depth about like why I think this metaphor does in fact still work. So I want to bracket all of this for like the last couple episodes with the caveat. We're talking about it in this way because we don't have the full picture yet. Like we are addressing the picture that we have at this moment in the series. I personally know what comes next. But until we get there with Chesney, I'm not spoiling it by saying, well, actually, there's a a (laughs) bigger thing at play here. and, And there's more like I want you, the listener, to know I am aware of this. But the conversations we are having are entirely based upon the facts as they have been presented by the show until this point. We will get there. Trust me, fam, we will get there. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know what some people want to say. We'll get there.
1: <laughs> uh, I do just want to say that's really fucking cool that you searched for the Sunlight Garden on Spotify and found our podcast and rediscovered an anime that you had started watching back in 2004 or five. That is really fucking incredible. Behold the power of technology.
0: yeah (laughs) um really glad you found us yeah okay so we have another one here um from Alyssa. hello my name is Alyssa. i've been binging your podcast for a while now and it's really great especially the conspiracy hat theories (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway you've talked about wanting to see the student council members besides Utana duel each other and there's actually some animated footage of that the official Sega Saturn game for Utena has duels with the student council against each other. Who wins depends upon which route you take, but the duels are still fun to watch. The game is a real treasure. There's a lot of small details about the student council. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. You can find the playthrough on YouTube or get it from Empty Movement's forum page if you ever want to check it out. And I'll post the link in the Twitter when we post this podcast uh it's basically 1.5 arc with its own antagonist and protagonist now for the question uh, okay first yeah i i have tried to play the sega saturn game before um i have had trouble getting the emulator to work on my last pc i want to try it again but i have seen it. it it's it really captures i feel like the vibe of the show but it's about an entire, like, O.C. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like, it feels like an elevated fan work in the best way.
1: <laughs> I love that. Also love that there is a Utena video game. That's
0: news to me. That's fucking incredible. Now for the question. Who do you think is the most innocent character of all the cast besides the obvious ones like Utena and Chuchu? And by that, I mean, who has done the least amount of bad things? All right, that's all I've got. Thank you for reading. Okay, Alyssa. That is a hell of a question. because <laughs> I don't think Uten is innocent either. Um, I think that it is uh presumptuous of her in a lot of ways, especially in the early arc of um the because like she falls into the same trap everyone else does in trying to become a prince, which is. Even though she's doing it for good reasons, what she is doing reifies Anthe's position as the Rose Bride. She is a damsel in distress who needs Utena to save her. As far as Choo-Choo's innocence, yeah, I, I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> Choo-Choo's not real. <laughs> as far as like who else I would argue is innocent, Wakaba probably. Um, she's up there on that list. Yeah. Kanae, I would say. Like we literally see Kanae do no wrong. Yeah. She is the most innocent victim of Akio's. Yeah. Like he is explicitly just using her. And she's been put in this position by her father. And mother. Yeah. And Akio puts her mother in a number of positions as well. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Autumn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> had to just had to just slide
1: that one in there. Uh, I love that you read it like a news headline too. <laughs> um,
0: but what do you think? Who who would you say are the most innocent characters? Well,
1: for me, it's obvious. It's the snails, the weasel, and the octopus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the, o- the most. The octopus ca- is a balloon.
1: Oh, oh wait, no, it's the kitten. That Nanami killed. Oh yes,
0: the kitten. That kitten it. deserved none That's of the what most. Happened to it. That is the most innocent character in this show. It that did kitten, nothing but exist. That kitten did not deserve to be given to Toga. It did not deserve to be put in a box. It did not deserve to be put in a river. Nope. Uh,
1: as far as like character characters go, <laughs> I agree. Kanaiya for sure. Um, Wakaba, even though she has her shadow self. Um, I would argue jury, And maybe even... um, Oh my god, what is his name? Blue hair protagonist. Mickey. No, the other one.
0: Ruka? Yes. (laughs) All right, you're gonna have to clarify Ruka.
1: (laughs) So, even though Ruka pulled all that bullshit and... He's not as innocent,
0: but (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say like the fact that you have to qualify it that way means he's not, but go on, (laughs) I want to hear the rest of this argument. (laughs) The fact that he tried to free Jury from the system.
1: Even though like he did it like Utina, playing in the same thing. He literally died trying. So that kind of speaks to something, even though his methods of getting there were like "Mm." I feel the same way about Mickey. I feel like actually I'm going to swap these. It's Jury then Mickey then Ruka. Okay. Uh, Mickey's got a messed up view of Anthy and is very easily swayed, but in terms of like shit that he's actually done wrong, uh, the list is not long. He's very he's a very innocent kind of character. Like naive, young type thing. Okay. Jury, I, she I mean shit, what does she do wrong? <laughs> Come to this school, like that's it. Not confess her <laughs> feelings
0: uh for the woman that she loves or the girl that she loves. Okay. yeah. I mean, jury tortures herself. She her only her only crime is hurting herself. Right. So that's why I was like, Yeah,
1: um kanaye wakaba, then jury. Because Jury is, of the main cast, the one who has not really done anything to harm other people.
0: Okay. Yeah, I could see
1: that. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. And our next and last one is from Raya. Hello. I know I am late in the series writing in. But I just wanted to say how much I love and look forward to this podcast. I'm sure you get a lot of emails from other fans, so I'll try not to go on too long. But I am so excited for the Cantarella scene and how you both interpret it. It is one that has stuck with me so much over the last two decades. I truly hope you do the movie as well. And I'm curious about how Chesney will feel about the story as a whole when it is all done in her favorite parts. Oh, yeah, there's going to be like a hole. <laughs> <laughs> A whole eval and also probably a fan mail episode at the end of the series and everything. Yeah.
0: So the Cantarella scene being referenced here is going to be coming up in episode 37. So that is two episodes from now. Okay. Uh, It is a fantastic scene. And yeah, I, I really can't say more about it without like getting into it. But we'll talk about it when we get there. So okay. Rest assured, we will talk about that. <laughs> and thanks, thank you Raya, for writing for... in. Yeah, thanks, Raya. So that was our second Mailbag episode. Uh, again, if you want to share any of your thoughts, you can write to us at absolute AbsoluteDestinyAPodcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, chat with us on Twitter at Pod. I'm also individually on Twitter. I'm at Life in Neon. And I am as well. I'm at car Cutie. And as you could probably tell from this episode, if you write in, we will read it. If you, <laughs> if you write a novel, we will read a novel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, I would just say, don't apologize for how long your email is. <laughs> it is not necessary.
1: And I also just wanted, uh, to campaign one more time because I can't stop. Um, about skip beat uh if you ever want to like write in about that um i would love to read that and uh your homework dear listeners from me uh is to read the first volume of skip beat and then come talk to me on twitter about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) so go do that and we will see you next time